Hello and welcome to our BMJ Clinical Podcast. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. I help look after BMJ Best Practice and BMJ Learning. BMJ Best Practice is our point of care clinical decision support tool and BMJ Learning is our online interactive learning resource. This podcast is about tularemia, about how to recognise, report and refer affected patients. Tularemia has been around a long time. It was the cause of epidemics in the Middle East over 3,000 years ago. Wars helped to spread the disease, sometimes by accident and sometimes by design. The Hittites deliberately introduced tularemia into Anatolia in the first known act of biological warfare. The Hittites would simply leave an infected sheep outside an enemy city. So, if the Trojans had a wooden horse, the Hittites had an infected sheep. Now, to tell us even more interesting things about tularemia, I'm delighted to introduce you to Dr. Isaac Bogosh. Dr. Bogosh is an assistant professor in infectious diseases at the University of Toronto School of Medicine. His clinical and research interests are in tropical diseases, global health, and HIV prevention. He works with an international team that models emerging and re-emerging global health threats. So, Isaac, you're welcome. It'd be great if you could start off by telling us a little bit about your experience with tularemia. Well, thank you so much for having me here, and I'm happy to chat about uh, tularemia. Uh, I mean, certainly this is uh, an infection that uh, people might have heard about, but maybe don't know too much about. Uh, And the reason that is, is because we might have heard about it in medical school or heard about a case now and again that maybe our colleagues have seen, but many clinicians might not actually see a case, and uh, many clinicians might only see one or a handful of cases in their entire career, even if they're working in an area where there's more tularemia present than, than others. So perhaps we should just start with what exactly is tularemia, and then we can work, uh, work forward from there. So tularemia really is a bacterial organism called Francisella tularensis. And this is a bacterial infection. We call this a zoonotic infection because most of the cases are acquired from animals. Uh, it's an aerobic bacteria, and it can cause uh, disease uh, ranging from mild to rather severe in, uh, in human hosts. And how would you recognize an, inf- an infected patient? Well, tularemia has a very wide range of clinical manifestations. Uh, and a lot of this actually is reflected of how the organism is acquired. Now, I think we should just delve into a small tangent about how people get tularemia because that really is indicative of what types of syndromes people might have. So people can get tularemia from many different mechanisms. Uh, Certainly, we know that tularemia is in nature. What does that mean? It's really, it can be found in over 100 different vertebrate hosts. The typical vertebrate hosts we think about are rabbits and beavers and mice and voles and squirrels. We don't often think about these other animals, but you know, sometimes those animals get sick and die. Other times they don't get sick and die, they just carry the infection. And regardless, those animals can transmit the infection to us. So how do humans get it? Certainly contact with these infected hosts, uh, with these infected vertebrates. So if there's infected material, for example, blood that comes into contact with a human mucous membrane, or a cut in our skin, we can we can certainly get it. So people who handle animals or hunters or veterinarians are, are, are certainly at greater risk. 
Another very common and probably the most common mechanism of acquiring this infection is through insect bites. Now, tick bites uh, can transmit this typically in, in summer months when, when ticks are biting, but there's other insects that can transmit it as well. In certain regions, mosquitoes can transmit it, and in other regions, horseflies can transmit the infection. So that's a very important mechanism, and we'll see how the mode of acquisition really can reflect the, the, the type of syndrome. Two other kind, uh, important ways of getting this infection are through the ingestion of contaminated meat or water. So obviously, it's important to cook our meat and, and drink uh, purified water. And lastly, inhalation. Uh, this is a uh, what we call a category A bioterrorism agent. So it can be uh, weaponized and people can inhale uh, tularemia. In addition, people can inhale it through a, a number of uh, mechanisms in nature. And this sort of blends into, well, what are the how do we how would we recognize a patient affected with tularemia? And the, and the challenge here is it's difficult because there can be many different clinical manifestations and a wide range of syndromes. The three most common syndromes are uh, one called ulceroglandular disease, another called glandular disease, and another form called pneumonic tularemia. There's others, but those are the three most common clinical manifestations. Let's just first start with ulceroglandular disease. This is, uh, well, actually all three of them, patients will have a fever. So fever is going to be common throughout all. So if someone's febrile, obviously it's not specific, but that's that's certainly a clue. And in ulceroglandular disease, patients will have a fever. They'll also have this ulcerative lesion uh, that typically has a central eschar in it. And, and this is usually the site of a tick bite uh, or, or the insect bite. So when we re remember just from a few moments ago, how do people acquire this? People that uh, get tularemia from, from, from insect bites will, will commonly, not always, but will commonly have this uh, ulcerative lesion with a with an eschar, and that's the site of the bite. And then they'll have a fever and tender lymphadenopathy around the area. So that's ulceroglandular tularemia. Glandular tularemia really just is the fever and this regional lymphadenopathy, but th there's no identifiable skin lesion in those cases. And then lastly, this pneumonic form of tularemia. This is uh, from inhalation of the organism. Uh, so if it's aerosolized by some mechanism and people inhale it, uh, uh, people will present with uh, fever and then also have respiratory symptoms, so cough, shortness of breath, and, and certainly, uh, you know, on, on examination, they'll have signs and symptoms suggestive of what might appear to be a, a severe community-acquired pneumonia, and, and the x-ray will be compatible with a consolidation, sometimes a pleural effusion, and frequently a hyalur adenopathy as well. So it's got a broad range of clinical manifestations. And this is really reflective of how people acquire the infection. Uh, thank you, Isaac. That's really helpful. What, what tests would you request if you suspected? This is one of the challenges with tularemia in that it's rather hard to make a diagnosis. And because uh, the clinical manifestations are so broad, and we'll touch on the differential diagnosis in, in a few moments for each of these. So because the, 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 there's such a wide range of clinical manifestations, and the differential diagnosis is rather broad as well, people don't often suspect it. So the first thing is, let's keep this on our radar in our differential diagnosis. And essentially, you know, this is really confirmed in the microbiology lab. So number one, uh, we can do a blood test or a tissue test and send it for a gram stain and culture. Now, the problem with that is it's not the most sensitive test. 
Uh, it's obviously quite specific if uh, Francisella tularensis grows, but it's, it's not the most sensitive test. It's a challenging uh, bug to grow in a lab. Another way to test for it is through serology. Now, the problem with serology, of course, is the antibody, antibody titers uh, aren't necessarily positive until about two weeks after an exposure. So this doesn't really help us in a clinical setting. It will confirm a diagnosis, uh, hopefully after someone has, has recovered. So really the pendulum now is swinging towards more rapid diagnoses for this infection through the use of molecular mechanisms. So PCR, and, uh, and there's many labs around the world who are using PCR to detect this. And of course, this, is, uh, this can be done rapidly and has a much higher uh, sensitivity and specificity. But I think even before all those lab tests are done, this, this still has to be suspected by the clinician as a potential diagnosis so that we can contact the lab and ask them to do the serology or PCR tests. Okay, great. So if you suspect or diagnose a, a patient, what isolation measures should you take? Actually, this is pretty interesting in that, you know, it's rather challenging from a human to spread tularemia to another human. So it doesn't require specific, you know, airborne precautions. It would just be the routine uh, contact precautions. You know, obviously, if someone was sick with tularemia and, and someone was aspirating um, perhaps a lymph node, you know, obviously, you wouldn't want to have a needle stick injury. You wouldn't want to spray any fluid in, into your eye during, the, during that uh, procedure because that would be a mode of transmission. But, I mean, the same would be said for when, when we're conducting any type of procedure on, on a patient. So these are just standard uh, contact precautions will, would, be, uh, would be sufficient to prevent uh, other people from getting ill from this infection. And you mentioned differential diagnosis. How would you tell uh, tularemia from other common differentials? Yeah, this is, this is rather challenging. Because there's such a broad spectrum of illness with tularemia, uh, this mimics many other types of infectious and non-infectious etiology. So let's think about this ulceroglandular or glandular forms of tularemia. You know, I, I like to sort of think of things in terms of infectious and non-infectious uh, etiologies that can that can mimic this. So thinking about infectious etiologies, you know, we have uh, regional lymphadenopathy, fever, plus or minus an ulcerative lesion with an eschar. So the differential is rather broad. Certainly bacterial organisms can cause this, like streptococcal or staphylococcal infections that have regional lymphadenopathy. Other bacterial infections that can cause this syndrome include uh, cat scratch disease from Bartonella. Syphilis can cause this as well. And then uh, we're seeing more and more cases of lymphogranuloma venereum, which is a, a, a increasingly common sexually transmitted infection. More, I guess we would say, rare bacterial causes of this, but certainly on the differential diagnosis, are anthrax, especially when we talk about having the cutaneous form of anthrax that has that central eschar in, uh, in an ulcer. Uh, plague certainly commonly has this uh, regional lymphadenopathy, and then uh, and, and that really rounds out the bacterial bacterial uh, causes. Now there are fungal infections that might mimic this, for example, sporotrichosis and other endemic fungal infections. But sporotrichosis typically causes this nodular lymphangitis type of clinical diagnosis and, and, and clinical spectrum, and that might mimic it. And finally, uh, rounding this out, there's viral causes. So 
acute HIV certainly can have fever and lymphadenopathy. That should be on the differential. And, and, and herpes uh, simplex infections might have some of the ulcerative lesions that we talk about. A couple of others, uh, when we think about um, protozoal infections, toxoplasmosis can have uh, fever and, and lymphadenopathy. So those are the infectious causes. Non-infectious causes, really, I mean, we should be thinking about malignancy when we think about fever and regional lymphadenopathy, but also uh, bites, non-infectious bites. So, for example, a spider bite that has local necrosis in the case of ulceroglandular tularemia. One other thing I should mention is, you know, there, there is this mnemonic form of tularemia, and uh, the differential for the mnemonic form might be rather broad as well. But certainly when people present with fever, cough, shortness of breath, I mean, this is a community acquired pneumonia until proven otherwise. So there's many, many etiologies of community acquired pneumonia. That would be much higher on my differential diagnosis than tularemia in someone coming in. Of course, we'd have to get a good history and hear what the epidemiologic exposures are. But after a community acquired pneumonia, we think about things again, in the appropriate epidemiologic uh, categories, but something like tuberculosis uh, and, and pulmonary uh, fungal infections as well in the appropriate context, and then much more rare uh, etiologies, again, in the appropriate epidemiologic context, things like pneumonic plague or psittacosis or even Q fever. So th those would round out the, uh, the differential diagnosis for the major syndromes of tularemia. So do you need to refer, and if so, how urgently, and, and where should you refer? In general, I think referral to a local hospital would be, would be reasonable. People can get pretty sick, and they can get sick rather quickly with, with tularemia. And uh, a local hospital might have more sophisticated laboratory equipment available, for example, the PCR, to help make a rapid diagnosis. Um, however, in certain cases where if you have a well patient as an outpatient and for some reason a culture came back positive and the patient was extraordinarily well and only had cutaneous disease, there's no reason that they would need a referral and they could be managed in an outpatient setting as well. Okay, and, and should you report the disease once diagnosed and, and how urgently should you report it? The guidelines for reporting diseases differ in different jurisdictions. In my jurisdiction, if there's a positive uh, case of tularemia, the labs uh, the labs will report it uh, automatically to the appropriate public health bodies. Uh, in other jurisdictions, it might be up to the clinician to report, but it should be reported right away. And the reason is, if there's one case, there might be other cases, especially in the context of this being a Category A biologic weapon. So it should be reported, and it should be reported rapidly. Okay, great. Thank you. And tell us, what are the common pitfalls? in the diagnosis and management of uh, tularemia? The major pitfall is what we would call a failure to consider. You know, this just is such a rare infection. Even in places that have more cases, for example, Turkey has a lot of tularemia, but even in Turkey, it's still not a common event. So clinicians might not consider it and uh, laboratories might not consider it. And I think that's the biggest pitfall. If this is on the radar of the clinician or the laboratory, then we can more quickly come up with a diagnosis and manage cases. The, the key issue here is to recognize the three major syndromes of tularemia and to have this enter the differential diagnosis in the appropriate epidemiologic context. Okay, well, thank you very much, Isaac, and thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better recognize, report, 
and refer affected patients. If you want to find out more, then click on the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice or BMJ Learning and look at the content on tularemia. Thank you once again. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes.